Well, as we find ourselves in week two of our series, we picked up where we'd started our in-person meetings last week. We started last week at verse 10 of, maybe not 10, we started at verse 13 last week of Matthew chapter 5. And so at the beginning of the spring, when we first started gathering in person, we went through the Beatitudes, and then, and then we moved on to some other series. Now we're back in the Sermon on the Mount. So this, this is the same sermon that Jesus is giving. And last week he spoke of being salt and light. And we thought about what does it mean to be salty? What does it mean to be light? And a key part of that that we talked about, but is really, really hard, is we're called to be righteous. But what does it mean to be righteous? We spend a lot of time arguing over that, actually, as Christians. Should, should we do this? Should we do that? What, what does it look like to be righteous? If you do this, or you watch this, or you say this, or are you not righteous? And then if you do these other things, you are righteous. If you dress a certain way, are you righteous? And then if you don't, you, you aren't righteous. And we find a lot of people struggling. I think probably, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us struggle at times. What does it mean to genuinely be righteous? Is it just a trend? I was thinking, my dad and I installed a, a, a new kitchen stove last, uh, thing, right before Thanksgiving last year. And, and um, now, th- for those of you that are a little handier than I am, maybe that sounds like, oh, a, a stove. <coughs> but you know, I, I don't think I realized until we did that how heavy those things are. Mm-hmm. They're heavy. Um, and, and so you, you pull out the old one and you put in the new one. And I, I was looking at that old stove sitting out on, on the driveway waiting for the, the bulk pickup and, and thinking about the changing styles that we have in, in appliances, in, in kitchens, in, in houses, in, in clothing, in all sorts of things in our world. But as, as I was looking at that stove, I, I still thought it looked like a really nice stove. It didn't work any longer, so it wasn't you know, a good stove, but it looked like a nice stove. It was a nice, sleek, white design. I, I, I like white appliances. It looked really nice. Nowadays, though, you, you go and you shop for appliances, and you probably have to pay extra to get white because no one's carrying it. They all have stainless steel instead. That, that is what you're going to put in your kitchen, it would seem, because that's what's the trend at the moment. Now, I, I wish I knew what the next trend was going to be because if I did, I would patent the color or the design, and we would have this ministry funded for, for all time as everyone switched over to, to whatever it is, right? I mean, lots of people would love to figure that out, and there's lots of people trying to guess, you know, is it going to be stainless forever? Is it going to be white again? Is it going to be black? Is it going to be um, all those colors from the late 70s and early 80s, the avocados and, and yellows and so on? Uh, you know, what, what is it? Yeah, it, everything seems to come back, doesn't it? But, you know, one thing that that puts in our minds, I, I think, is how trendy things are, right? They, they pass by. And, and so if I said, well, what is a righteous stove? Uh, it's totally righteous, yeah. Uh, what, what is a righteous oh. stove? Uh, we'd, we'd say, well, you can't, as far as color goes, I mean, I guess a righteous stove, a righteous stove is a stove that can actually heat things, right? I mean, that's a, a righteous stove, I suppose. But as far as the style of it, you can't say that here's a stove that's righteous and here's a stove that isn't righteous because 
it's going to pass by. And I, I was really reminded of this a couple weeks ago when I saw a, a neighbor had replaced his or her stove um, a few houses down, and it was a stainless steel stove. It looked like what I think is current, but apparently current has been around so long now that they had it out at the st- on the street. I have no idea what they replaced it with. But it seems like every so many years, we're just taking things and we put them out on the curb and they're outdated. They're, you can't say it's righteous. And our world would like to say the same thing about moral righteousness. It's what's in the moment. And, and maybe they wouldn't put it in so many words that we just kick to the curb outdated righteousness, but sometimes we actually almost go that far. Well, especially when someone learns you're a Christian, well, what do you mean that you are are paying attention to what this book says about righteousness. Don't you know this was written by, by men 2,000 years ago or longer ago, and they had their agendas, and it's so out of date. What could you possibly be thinking, saying that you should base your life on how you should live in the law of God today? Some of the people that heard Jesus speaking thought that he was sort of that kind of person because they saw him coming and he was rejecting some of the, the customs they did to, to convey a righteous lifestyle. You know, how, how do you live? How do you eat? All these things. He was calling into question some of the things they were doing. And in, in so doing, they looked at him and thought, he's saying that righteousness is just trendy. And if righteousness is just trendy, then there's nothing that can be depended on. He must be here to destroy God's law. And so as we turn to this next part, and and Jesus has just had us thinking about how to be salt and light, how to be righteous, he wants to be very clear that God's law doesn't change and that righteousness actually matters. And that's where we're going to turn tonight as we turn to Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. But as we do, let's come before our God our unchanging God, and ask for his guidance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that we can look at your word today and know that it is still true, that it still speaks to the challenges that we face, the temptations we face, the uncertainties we face. And Lord, as we think about what it means to be your righteous people, how we do that, Would you help us to to rest in your truth and in the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of our Savior Jesus? We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Let's go ahead and see what Jesus says here. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus wants to be very clear. Now, we can sometimes be very clear and then be mistaken or very wrong. But Jesus wants to say here very clearly, God's law isn't mistaken, it isn't wrong. It's here to stay and he's not here to eliminate it. He does that. He talks about that not a, if you, we probably all think of it in the King James, not a jot or a tittle. Uh, here it said an iota or a dot. An, an iota is, a, is the smallest of the Greek letters. 
Um, so if you were to look at a Greek alphabet, it would be the one that would take the least amount of space on a page. He wants to say, if you have the smallest Greek letter of God's law written down, God's not going to scratch out that one letter. And then he has a dot. And, and the dot would seem to be even smaller. The dot would presumably be, people wrestle with it a little bit. There's several different candidates in Hebrew on what he has in mind, but quite possibly what are known as vowel pointings. And, and, and in, in Hebrew, you actually put dots around the letters to indicate what vowel goes with it. Uh, rather than having vowels like we do, A, E, I, O, U, uh, they don't have those. Uh, you have these dots. So literally, dots, like a period. And he wants to say something as small as the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, something that's not even a full-fledged letter in Hebrew. It's not going to pass away. So, so Jesus wants to start here. He's going to base, as he goes through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and we're going to be looking at a, a good chunk of it over the next few weeks in this series, as we're thinking about what does it look like to live as people of God's kingdom right now, he wants to start with this very clear point. God's law doesn't change. And he's not here to eliminate it. Not even the smallest, smallest part of it. So even many of those that he was speaking to, probably if they really looked in their hearts, wouldn't go that far. And neither would we. Not, not because we, we want to eliminate God's law, but because we do. We practically do. We, we find ways around it. We find ways not to do it. But Jesus wants to say, it isn't going anywhere. And he starts by by saying, it's not only we're, we're going to keep the smallest letters, but we're going to keep these things. These things are not going to pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Well, till the end of the world is a pretty good indicator it's not going anywhere, at least for us, right? I mean, okay, the world could end tomorrow, but, but in any case, we say the law is going to stick here until the end of the world. That feels pretty concrete, right? But Jesus doesn't even stop there. He goes from heaven and earth, and then he says a little bit more. Let's look at that again. He says in verse, verse 18, the end of verse 18, he says, not the iota, the not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, I think to our ears, heaven and earth passing away sounds more concrete. But if you were a student of God's law and prophets, if you were really focused on how does, how does the Old Testament, the entirety of their scriptures at that time, how does that fit into this grand scheme of things? This is going even further, because if we think about it, there are prophecies that God's given that speak not only to the time up to when the heavens and earth are pa pass away, when God makes all things new, but all the way through the fulfillment of that. In other words, through all time, every last drop of time. Jesus wants to say, it's not that God's given us a law and it'll stick around for a little while longer. The end is near, right? People are always saying the end is near. And, and so if you think about that, well, okay, chronologic, or for the way we live our lives, the law is here to stay, but it could end tomorrow. No, Jesus wants to say, this isn't something that's going to expire tomorrow. It's not going to expire next year. It's not going to expire in all eternity. This represents God's righteousness, and it's here. 
true. So Jesus has the most exalted view of God's law that a person could possibly hold. Doesn't hurt that he's the author of it, right? But the people there weren't necessarily getting that at this point. Pharisees debated, how does God's law factor in? How long does it last? All these things. Jesus wants to say, you're not going to one-up me on this one. I'm not ever going to say that you can eliminate God's law. Let's go a step further, Jesus says. And we're going to skip. Well, Jim and I were talking over some of the, the upcoming messages that we're going to have in this series and, and, and how this verse at the end of chapter 5, which is partway through the Sermon on the Mount, really sums up this whole section. And so we're probably going to come back to it. You're going to hear it over and over again over the next few weeks. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 48. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that's a higher view than anything the Pharisees could possibly propose. He's not just saying, fulfill the law perfectly. He's saying, reach God-level perfection. You need to be perfect. Mm -hmm. You think about the law. The law gave exit ramps for when you weren't perfect. You do this, you get this sacrifice. You do this, you get this sacrifice. Come before your God. You humble yourself. Jesus says, be perfect. Reminds me of, if, if any, I don't know if we have any video gamers here, but if, you, if you've ever played a video game, there are often two different ways you can play it. You can, you can play it where you're just trying to get through it, get to the end, see the conclusion of the story, or you can play it where you get every single item you can collect. You get all the gems or all the rings or all the this or all the that, and you do it in the lowest amount of time possible so you get a perfect score. A lot of our, our fo- games that show up on smartphones today will have like stars you can earn. and You can get through the whole thing and only have one star per level, or you could get all three stars per level, that kind of thing. Well, Jesus says, well, sure, in, in God's law, you could get through it and not get everything every time. God showed his mercy in that, but but here's God's real calling for us. Complete it perfectly. And here's the problem that we need to, to really wrestle with in, in ourselves. We can't even complete God's law perfectly, much less complete everything perfectly. The temptation that I mentioned at the beginning, the idea to view God's morality as trendy and passing, where, okay, this was relevant 2,000 years ago. Now let's talk about what morality should look like today. You know, and, and there are people who would love to tell us, here's what Jesus would say if he were alive today. And, and you know, Jesus would, would, t- would talk about, I don't know, um, making sure we have green climate policies and he would talk about uh, nuclear demilitarization and this and that and whatever the pet subject might be. Some of them are good, some of them not, some of them not in the way they're presented. But, you know, those would be the things Jesus was concerned about. If Jesus were here today or he were here 10 years ago or 15 years ago or, or next year. But when Jesus talks here, he wants to make it clear 
Morality doesn't change. We change. The parts that we find acceptable change. But, but God doesn't change. And it's kind of interesting when you think about it. If you look at different periods of time, different parts of God's word are going to be the struggle for people. Some of it, it's the same all the time. We all face certain temptations all the time. We all face certain struggles all the time. We all struggle to actually worship God in, in, in pureness of heart all the time. Those, those things stay. But, but even if you look at the story of the Old Testament, you have times where the people are chasing after other gods, and that's their problem. You have times where they're, they're not understanding the heart of God. You have times where they're missing that they're supposed to be proclaiming God to the rest of the world. And that's just rolled on. And, and so today, there are some things that are in Scripture that were a struggle back then that aren't a struggle now. But there are an awful lot of things where we hear the world say, that's just outdated. Move on. Jesus wouldn't have said that if he were an enlightened 21st century person. Well, actually, yeah, maybe if Jesus were just a 21st century enlightened person, whatever that means, he wouldn't have said it. But he's not a 21st century enlightened person. He's God. And so, thankfully, thankfully he doesn't say those things. He says what's unchanging. Where do I say what's changing? Where do I squint at God's word and say, I don't really want to think about that? Surely that's not what God really wants. It comes down to those places in our lives where we want to live in a way that's contradictory to Scripture. And whatever those places might be, and we're all going to have those places, those blind spots, and even once we become aware of them, those temptations that we really, really, really would like to think that, that God's Word is an avocado stove or a white stove. Or maybe next year a stainless steel stove. Maybe next year all stoves will be shiplap. I don't know. Um, you know, um, we, we want to think about dated, and it just needs to go out to the driveway to be picked up by the pulp pickup. God would take this out. Some people have tried to do that. They go through and remove things from God's word because they think, well, we can help God out here. And if you've been a, a follower of Christ for some time, you probably cringe a little at that, and rightly so. But, but where am I doing that functionally, even if I'm not doing it by actually taking a scissors to my Bible? Where am I just not hearing God's heart? Where am I not doing what God's Word says because it doesn't fit with this world, doesn't fit with my life, doesn't fit with my desires? And it feels necessary to, to say somehow, well, this isn't really what God meant. Because if I can say that and convince myself of that and maybe convince other people of that, then what do I do? I justify myself. I don't have to say, well, I'm an imperfect, sinful person, and yeah, I, I'm, struggling, I'm struggling with this sin right now. I can say, well, I've got this all under control, and I'm righteous. That's what the Pharisees wanted to say. They wanted to say, we have this all under control, and they had a particular way of interpreting each of the verses of the law and the prophets. They could go through it, and they could say, well, if I do this, it fulfills that sense. So I'm perfect. I have it all under control. What's the problem, Jesus? But Jesus wants us to understand 
that not only does righteousness stay true and, and it stays firm and it's here every single day, but self-righteousness doesn't work. That's what he talks about in verse 19. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to imagine Jesus' followers right now. They're sitting there listening to this message. And, and the first part's very, very encouraging, challenging. When we, talk, when we went through the series Blessed and we thought about the Beatitudes, they can be challenging if we really understand, well, these are the things that God values. But it also is sort of encouraging and it's beautiful. And even talking about being salt and light, we can say, well, I'm being salt and light. I'm, I'm doing the parts of God's word I think are relevant. And, and so I'm being salt in a 21st century context by doing that. In a way, that's what the Pharisees were doing. I'm, I'm being salt and light in a first century context. And, and so I want you to imagine here, here are the disciples and, and, and the followers of Jesus. And, and many of them come from all kinds of less than ideal backgrounds. Uh, certainly they're not the religious leaders. doesn't mean they weren't religious. But, but we hear often today, you know, you talk to, to, the, to the average uh, the pew, person in the pew, and, and you, you ask, you'd ask them, maybe you can, we can play this little game here. Visualize for a moment, or think for a moment, who is really righteous? And maybe we think of a really great Christian teacher, or author, or speaker, or a great composer of hymns, or, or whatever it might be. Or, or maybe... Your, your, your grandmother who always prayed for everyone every day, that sort of thing. We, we can think of somebody and say, well, here is a really righteous person. When Jesus is talking about the Pharisees here, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, if you ask them, tell me someone who's really righteous, they would have said, well, scribes and the Pharisees. They know God's law backward and forward. They could tell me any spot in it right off the top of their head. They know how to apply it. They know all the details of interpreting it to apply it to any circumstance in life. They're the righteous ones. Jesus says, if that's what you think, if you think that they're the ones who are righteous, then understand this. The Pharisees were good. The Pharisees were good. They did a lot of good things. They're just not good enough. I'd imagine if you went to the qualifiers for an Olympic sport. I, I, did anyone here uh, be an Olympic sport? I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I would have just hurt myself really badly if I tried. But, um, <laughs> but if I had, I imagine I would have gone and, and they would have said, uh, well, write down you know, some details about your accomplishments. And they would have looked at it and they said, um, if you were here to be... Uh, someone cheering one of the fans in the stands watching the others? Here, just right over there, that's the ticket booth. You, you didn't really want to register, did you? But now imagine you're someone who, who say, all through high school and college, you were, you were competing in your, your teams at your school, and you were really pretty good at it. I mean, by most standards, you were good. Well, you still might show up at that Olympic qualifier, and, and you start to write that stuff down, and the person says, well, I'm sorry, we have people who are better. 
Or maybe you get allowed to go into the qualifier, but you're not sent to the Olympics just because you go to the qualifier. A lot of people get cut because they're good, but not good enough. Jesus wants us to understand that every single Pharisee, those who understand his, the word of the Lord better than anyone else of that time, they're good, but they're not going to make the cut. Let's listen from Isaiah to, to, the, to the goal of followers in God's kingdom. Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me up to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What was the servant? What was the Messiah going to come? He was going to come and gather people who could be called oaks of righteousness. I wish people could call me an oak of righteousness. They shouldn't. But I wish. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't you love to be an oak of righteousness? Really, truly solid. But are any of us? The Pharisees themselves couldn't be considered oaks of righteousness. And yet, from the Gospels, we know a lot of the problems of the Pharisees and the, the evil they, they plotted against Jesus and so on, but we don't want to go there too quickly. We want to just think about them at this moment and their role as those who understand God's word better than anyone else in that area. Who, quite frankly, did God's word better. They followed it more fully than almost anyone else in, in the area. And, th and that's one of the challenges I think we have with the Pharisees is we forget that these were actually religious leaders who, by and large, actually tried to do God's word. They cared about it. But they also cared about feeling like they cared about it. They wanted people to look up to them and say, oh, there are the oaks of righteousness. Jesus says they're not because they're going to fall short. And the way they fell short was by trying to build up that sense that we can add to God's law to apply it to our current moment and we can do it in a way that makes it relevant to that moment. And why did they want to do that? So they could justify themselves. When you look at the Old Testament law and you look at what Jesus calls us to do, they call us to the same thing. Jesus wasn't changing what God wanted his people to look like. But if you add a bunch of laws on top of it and say, well, this is what this passage means. This is how you honor the Sabbath. This is how you honor your mother and father. This is how you, you tithe. This is how you do this. This is how you do this. Why were they doing that? They wanted to narrow it down, build a very clear path. If you do this, then you've fulfilled the law. And, and part of that was for the very justifiable reason they didn't want to accidentally not follow it. But you know what else happens when you do that? It allows you to know that you, yes, you have fully succeeded in doing it. When the Old Testament calls the people of God to love their neighbors 
as themselves. That's not new in the New Testament. When Jesus says it, he's turning people back to the Old Testament law. When it says that, that's a messy commandment when you think about it. Mm-hmm. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? That's hard. But if you come up with a bunch of rules and regulations on loving your neighbor, you can narrow it down, which is exactly what they did, so they didn't have to love so many people. And when you did that, then you can say, well, and I have everything under control because I'm loving everybody that I'm required to love. But they were missing the heart of God. Really, when we think about what Jesus is saying about the law here, he's saying, yes, all the written words of the law are going to stay, but but there's something more than that. The reason the Pharisees could never measure up, the scribes could never measure up, is they were so worried about fulfilling that legal requirement of the law they're missing that God cares about the heart. He cares about character. Mm-hmm. He wanted people who desperately want to love God and love their neighbor, not people who were trying to see what the minimum they could accomplish to do that would be. God cares about character. And, and when we recognize that, when we recognize that God's not looking for us to hit the minimum of what we have to do, the problem becomes then, then we're inevitably falling short. Because we get tired, we wear out, we're not perfect. I I was reading a few weeks ago about a fascinating project. There's a group of explorers that are trying to drive around the world. And and they understand geography. They're not, you know, they're not flat earthers or something, and they're thinking, well, we can drive around the world. I've seen on a map, it's flat, I'll just drive. No, what they're doing is fascinating. You can go on their website and there's, a map, and they figured out how to cover the most land on earth possible with a vehicle. And so they, they're driving up, I think they start in South America, they're driving up to the Arctic, and then circling around on the frozen ice, and then they're going to come back down through Europe, down into Africa, and then I believe go all the way to South Africa, I think I have the route correct, and then they are going to hop on a boat to get to Antarctica. So they can actually cover, they're going to go over, I, th- I guess they cut through the Middle East, they're going to touch every continent. Amazing, amazing project. I think it's kind of neat. I mean, the goal, they said, was to, they thought by driving around the world, they could demonstrate to people how we're all connected together on this earth. And they're trying to just have something encouraging, and it it seems like in the endless cycle of discouragement we find. And and to do this requires a lot of planning, because if you're going to drive, for example, up in the Arctic, you can't just, you know, go to the car dealer and say, I'd like you know, one of your nicer SUVs and then just take off and make it? You're mm-hmm. not going to make it. They, so what they did is they took these Ford F-150s and they modified the body to put these giant, giant tires on that can handle the snow that they're going to go over. And they mm-hmm. were testing it earlier this year, back in February. And somewhere in Canada, they were out on the frozen surface. And apparently that frozen surface wasn't as thick, thick as they thought. And they heard cracking, and the driver clearly understood what he was doing, so he abandoned uh, the the truck, and the truck fell through the ice and went down into the ocean. Hmm. Sunk to the bottom. So you have this truck equipped with all kinds of special equipment. It's not like any truck you can just go buy. And uh, there it is. You can see, I mean, this is a serious truck. Uh, Maybe sometimes in St. Louis winters we kind of wish we had something like this, but uh, in any case... Uh, this is a serious, serious truck. But it ended up 
not on that beautiful snow like that, but here's what it is. They had to pull out of the ocean, and you can see they pulled it out just a few weeks ago, so it was under the ocean for like six months. They had to build these special airbags to lift it back up. You know, being a conservation program, they didn't want to just leave a truck with all the toxic chemicals and so on at the bottom of the ocean, so they, they lifted it up, and I'm sure they'll study it now, but, but you look at this truck, all the fancy equipment, all the abilities, all the uh, winter readiness righteousness, so to speak, doesn't work if the ice underneath breaks and you fall down into the ocean. It, that truck couldn't save itself. It wasn't going to get anywhere. The Pharisees thought they were the, the modified winter Arctic traveling trucks of the world. They were ready to face everything. And they're just cruising along down that snow because they're ready for Everyone else is slipping and falling. No, they're, they're just sailing down the road. No problem. Until they go onto the ice. And it's too thin and they drop into the ocean. And then, then they're shot. Self-righteousness doesn't work. But the final thing that we learn in this passage is that while self-righteousness doesn't work, Jesus' righteousness does. Notice what Jesus says back in verse 17 again. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Not to abolish, that's what they were, wanted to accuse him of doing, saying it was outdated. When, his, when Jesus' disciples didn't follow all of the Pharisees' customs, they, they, he didn't have them follow all the additional rules the Pharisees had created. They wanted to say, well, Jesus is abolishing the law. He says, I'm not doing that. I want you to understand I'm here to fulfill it. So that law is pointing somewhere. That's meant to do something. And I'm here to do it. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, in, in Romans 8, 4, Paul writes, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here's what we need to understand. When Jesus talks about fulfilling the law, first he's not saying all that law is antiquated and of no use. It's not true. It's not righteous anymore. Righteousness has changed. Get up to date. Tear out your old kitchen, put in a new one. He's not saying that. What Jesus is saying is, you're never going to succeed in fulfilling all that law. The law itself tells us that. The law points out all the places we fall short. And yet God's called us to perfection. So then what are we to do? If righteousness and following God's law and teaching God's law is how you become great in the kingdom of heaven, but we can't, we, we're not going to out-Pharisee the Pharisees, then what are we to do? We turn to the one who fulfills it. 
the, the ranking in the kingdom, the, those who do the law versus those who don't, speaks not to those who somehow have accomplished what the Pharisees couldn't and got everything right all the time, every single day, not a single bad thought, not a single bad deed. It's not that. It's how close we are to Jesus, to the one who has fulfilled it. Now, when we draw close to Jesus, he calls us to follow him, to look like him. So he's not saying, well, don't care about this law anymore. Don't care about what it means to be righteous anymore. But he's saying, quit thinking that you can self-righteously fulfill it yourself. Why is this law given when you're never going to be able to fulfill it? It's because I'm here to fulfill it. I came to do it. You don't have the ability, but I do. Does anyone else have a, um, like a, a, a bucket or a drawer where you throw all your change? We probably don't do that quite as much anymore. We've gotten a lot more electronic in how we pay money for things. But, but you know, you, you have, have, some, have change. And I, I have a bunch of change in my dresser. And there's something interesting when you really think about that, especially as prices go up. You can get out this big old bag of money and, and you, you I, I've taken out, you know, all, I, trying to rush it, take a whole scoop full of coins and then go to the car wash, say, or go to the vending machine. And you go and you say, wait a second, so does $2 a can now in the vending machine? Oh boy. Uh, so you go up to the vending machine and you pull out, oh, my pocket's weighed down by all this change. And, and you realize most of it isn't quarters, it's mostly nickels and dimes. And you start putting it in and it's, you know, 25 cents. I'm really thirsty. I have, okay. Uh, 35 cents, 45 cents, oop, this is a penny, 46 cents, 55 cents, and you keep going, and you get up to like $1.60, and you think, my, my pocket, I, I, I felt like my pants were going to fall off. It was so heavy with all these coins, and I'm not even to the amount to buy a single drink from the vending machine. That's how it often works as we seek to fulfill God's law the way the Pharisees do, where we seek to do it out of self-righteousness. We we're collecting more and more coins and putting them in our pockets, coins of righteousness, all these things that we're fulfilling to the point that we can barely move because our pants are so filled with these coins. But then we go up to the vending machine of God's grace and we start putting those coins in and inevitably we fall short. Lots of weight. It weighs down on us. It tears us apart, but we don't get anywhere. The problem is we think way, way, way too much about what we can do and not nearly enough about what God's righteousness really looks like. But here's the good news. As we, we're standing at that vending machine realizing that we have fallen short and we just have to hope that the change return works so at least we get our coins back. So we don't even need to worry about that. Because the thing that we learn as we, we reflect on how our self-righteousness falls short that Jesus' righteousness doesn't. And that as we think too much about what we can do, instead we need to be thinking about what Jesus can do. Because Jesus is enough. And he calls us to turn to him. And as we seek to, over these coming weeks, to think about what righteous living looks like and, and how we live as righteous people of the kingdom, let that always be the starting point. Let's make sure that the ice is going to hold us rather than building the really fancy vehicle and then just crashing through to the ocean we need jesus to hold us up good news is he's ready to hold each of us up right now would you pray with me please
Lord, why is it? We, you, you say in your word over and over again that you are here for us, that we can turn to your grace, that you will lift us up, that you have fulfilled the law so that the righteous demands of the law would be given to us who, when we turn to the law by ourselves, only find death. Even though we always fall, come up short as we, we try to tally up how many coins we've collected, Lord, we know that you never fall short. So why is it that we turn away from you? Why is it that we depend on ourselves? But Lord, for each person here tonight, each person online tonight, I pray that whether for the first time or for the millionth time, that you'd help us to, to take those coins out of our pockets and turn to you and your righteousness instead. That we might recognize that you're the only one that can hold us up your righteousness never changes, and it never goes away. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.